the day before Thanksgiving in 1971, a man identifying himself as Dan Cooper bought a plane ticket from Portland to Seattle. He hijacked the plane, claiming he had a bomb in his briefcase and demanded $200,000 in four parachutes. He jumped out of the plane with the money and the bomb somewhere over the Pacific Northwest, never to be seen again. The FBI claims to have investigated over a thousand people, including dozens of deathbed confessions. In 2016, 45 years after the hijacking, the FBI suspended its investigation of the case. While the FBI is no longer looking for D.B. Cooper, there is a community of people who are trying to solve the case on their own. Welcome to the Cooper Vortex. In this episode, I'm joined by Mark Metzler. Mark is an active skydiver with over 50 years experience jumping out of airplanes and holds a USPA Class D expert license that required nighttime jumps and water landings. He has even jumped with a nearly identical setup to the one that D.B. Cooper used, and he's jumped from the rear stairs of a DC-9 jet at over 14,000 feet. What makes Mark even more qualified to talk about the D.B. Cooper skyjacking is that he's a criminal defense attorney and has a degree in electrical engineering. Fascinated by aviation mysteries, he has been following and talking about this case with his skydiving buddies since the day it happened. Ladies and gentlemen, my good friend, Mark Messler. Well, I've been fascinated with parachutes since I was a little kid. I used to, you know, kids would play with toy soldiers. I would make little parachutes for them. And I made a parachute out of a bed sheet and tied ropes to the corners and did running jumps off our garage. Uh, lucky I didn't break anything. <laughs> and, but I didn't know anything about skydiving. I'd seen, you know, pictures of paratroopers and things like that. And uh, then when I was, I think about 11 years old, my parents, I had three younger brothers, uh, took us on a camping trip and we passed through a town called Calistoga, California. And I saw parachutes coming down. I told my parents, stop, stop, we have to see this. And we went over to the airport, which was kind of in the middle of town. It's an unusual setup. The, the runway was sort of in the middle of the town. And you could actually see um, people leaving the plane and falling for a long time and then opening their parachutes. And I didn't even know that could be done. And it just, it just absolutely fascinated me. I was transfixed. I was obsessed. Uh, my brothers got bored of it pretty quickly and wanted my parents to leave. And I begged them to stay there. So we stayed for a few hours. And... I was, you know, a pesky 11-year-old kid and, you know, bothering everybody and asking them. And they were quite nice to me. They were quite tolerant of my my youthful exuberance. And uh, they let me help fold parachutes, which made me feel like a big shot. And I said, when can I jump? And my parents were free-range parents. You know, they, they would let me do anything I wanted as long as they didn't have to pay for it. <laughs> and so they said, well... If you pay for it, we'll sign any waiver you want. And I begged these people to let me take instructions. And they said, no, not until you're 18. And I, then later, you know, I had a paper route and I was doing other things. I was repairing radios and TVs. And I had, I had a way to make some money back then. But I couldn't find anybody who would train me until I was 18. So literally, actually a few days before I turned 18, I lied on my, my application. <laughs> I, I made my first jump just a few days before I was 18. And... I was, uh, the, the thrill was just almost indescribably intense. And 
the amazing thing about it, it hasn't attenuated with the number of jumps or with the passage of time. It's still an incredibly intense, highly focused and gratifying experience. So I'm still doing it. I made my most recent jump just a couple of weeks ago. I like that. So your thousandth jump was just as exciting as your very first jump. Yes. Um, it, I know most people don't believe that, and, uh, but I've actually got some metrics to show how exciting it is. I, I thought that um, after you know a thousand jumps, I wasn't scared of going out the door of a of a jump ship anymore. I didn't feel scared. At least I thought I didn't. And uh, one activity I've taken up recently because another one of my hobbies is amateur radio, ham radio. Uh, we operate. Uh, VHF and HF radio gear from aloft and uh, make contacts while we're under parachute. And these guys, like me, they're all you know, engineers and nerds and everything. So we built some telemetry equipment, which included um, sensors that would measure my heart rate and my blood oxygen level and then transmit it in real time to mountaintop repeaters and post it on the internet as I was coming down. So, <laughs> that is a kind of a nerdy engineering it, thing to do. It is. I, you know, I thought I wasn't scared at all, but the, when the telemetry came back, my heart rate normally, you know, I'm just sitting around at 68 beats per minute. It peaked at 173, something like that. It was over 170 uh, during portions of the free fall, especially um, when uh, you're waiting for a parachute to open. That's an incredibly stressful time because if it doesn't open properly, you have a very short amount of time to do a sequence of emergency procedures. And you have to do it quickly and you have to do it in the right sequence. For example, if my main parachute opened <clears throat> and was fouled up, if I just pulled the reserve, it would go right up into the main tangle up and I would have the equivalent of you know a quarter of a parachute and I would die. Um, you have to cut away the main parachute, which is a lot easier to do now than it was in the old days with the surplus gear. Uh, back then, it was... Uh, a tougher procedure. I've done one of each. I did one cutaway under uh, the old military surplus gear, and I did one under the modern gear. It's much easier to do under the modern gear. And were you, was that intentional, or was that an I, emergency situation? I had malfunctions. I had two malfunctions, one in 1972 and one in 2005. And the one in 1972, that was with surplus, surplus military gear. gear? Yeah. It was, you know, my, first, my first parachute rig cost me $50, and that was the main, the reserve, um, harness container on the whole the whole works nowadays to get a good uh good set of gear a good rig you're spending upwards of seven thousand dollars so you know fifty dollars versus seven thousand um it uh the the military surplus parachute gear was very good in some ways it was incredibly well made it was very durable it was pretty reliable but it was never intended really for free fall parachuting um and the, the military surplus C9 canopies, which were beautifully designed, I mean, for emergency parachutes, canopies, there's really nothing better, and they're still used today, even though they were, came out, I think, in the post-World War II era. The date stamp on my 28-foot C9 canopy was 1951, but they're still used today. They're, they're that good. Really? Yes. And the one reason they're they are so good is they're just incredibly tough canopies. The suspension lines don't terminate at the skirt of the canopy. They go all the way up over the top and down the other side. So you have 28 suspension lines doing that. So the, the overall structure is far, far more robust than, than sport parachutes. And uh, even pilots in SR-71, which was, you know, you know, they didn't open their parachute at Mach 2, but they ejected uh, sometimes at very, very high speeds. And uh, 
it's just it's proven to be a great canopy for even jumping from high-speed jet aircraft. And why would somebody use that today over a modern chute? Nobody does. Uh, I was one of the last people at my drop zone, which back then was Pope Valley, California. I was one of the very last people to jump uh, what they called gutter gear. It was, and they called them cheapos too. That was, uh, if you said cheapo, and everyone knows you're talking about a 28-foot C9 canopy. Um, I was a student back then. I didn't have a lot of money, so I just jumped the cheapest gear I could find. And uh, everybody else was transitioning to square parachutes, and I was the last person still jumping one of those old, round, hard-landing C9 canopies. They're, they're very good, but they let you down pretty fast. And I always wondered, like, why didn't the military design these things to let you down a little softer? And somebody explained it to me that if you have... Um, Several air crew people, you know, like the F-4 Phantom was most of the time flying with two people, uh, front seat and back seat uh, pilot. I guess the person in the rear was operating the radar systems and so forth. But if they have to do an ejection, especially over enemy territory, you want them to land together. You don't want them separated by miles. If they have different weights, they're going to have different hang times in the air. And if there's a wind going, the person with a longer hang time will end up further away. So by letting the people down pretty fast, you reduce the separation for people whose weights are not equal. And uh, they put it right at the edge. I mean, you came down really hard under those old canopies. And, you know, you did it right. You didn't, you didn't break a bone, but it was right on the edge of being that hard. And I had to do a parachute landing fall every single time I landed under those. You couldn't do a stand-up landing very safely under those. And what's it like with modern gear? Modern gear, if, if you... Do it right, you can have a tiptoe landing every single time. And uh, I could jump in bare feet on most days, you know, when there's not a lot of wind. It's, uh, they're actually airfoils. They have a top surface and a bottom surface, and they're inflated with ram air that's coming in the front. And they assume uh, the shape of a lifting surface. So you can actually, if you build up enough speed in a dive, you can actually go back up. You can climb a little bit. That's how much uh, lift they have. And you can... As you're coming down, you've got a lot of forward speed, and as you get close to the ground, you start pulling down on both control lines, and they deflect the two rear surfaces, the right and the left rear surface of the parachute, very much like flaps on an aircraft. And that trades speed for lift. So you're slowing down, and you're increasing lift. And if you get the sequence and, and the variation just right, you will land with zero forward speed and zero vertical speed. So it's just, it, they're just ideal for old people like me. <laughs> I, I just turned 70, and if I had to jump that old uh, surplus gear now, I, I, I just couldn't do it. It would be too risky. But I'm, you know, I don't, don't have any problem with the modern gear at all. Have you ever been hurt doing this? No, I haven't. And that's, that's luck, too. I mean, it, it's, uh, I, just the last jump I was on, several people on the load got hurt. It was, the winds came up after we took off. So, you know, they were right marginal at 20 miles an hour when we took off, and I generally don't want to jump in winds higher than 20. And uh, they came up to gussing well above 25 when, after we were in freefall, and uh, several people got really banged up on landing. I didn't, but, I, I, you know, these people were just as skilled as I was, some of them more skilled. It's just luck of the draw, you know. So you've been doing this for 50 years, and you've never broken a bone doing it? Nope, never broken a bone, never had an injury. Wow. That does seem kind of like luck to me. Well, it's also risk management. Like, I won't jump in a 30-mile-an-hour wind. There's a few people who do that. I won't jump a really small canopy. A really small canopy gives you real high forward speed, but it also makes the landing a lot trickier. 
So if you have a really large canopy, like my canopy is 190 square feet, um, you can't jump in really high winds because you'll be going backwards. The speed just isn't enough to penetrate the wind. So I generally go in forward about 23 miles an hour, so I don't want to jump in anything over that. Um, if I had a really tiny canopy, I could jump in much higher winds, but the risk would go way up. So as I get older, I kind of adjust my risk uh, downward. Like I don't jump in really large formations anymore. I don't jump in really high winds anymore. Um, I've already done my night and water jumps to qualify for my D license. I'm not interested in doing any more night jumps or water jumps. So I'm trying to be realistic. I'd like to jump into my 80s. Um, and to do that, you just have to, uh, you have to reduce the risk as you get older because you like to kid yourself and think, I'm just as good as I was when I was 18, but you're not. Your reaction time's slow. Your physical coordination diminishes, so you just have to be realistic about it. I, I think I'm a good skydiver. I think I'm a safe skydiver, but that's my personal opinion. There's probably people say, you know, he's, he's not what he used to be. Well, it sounds like you certainly have a track record of being a good and safe skydiver. So far, yes, so far. Let's talk about risk. You said you got your night certification and water certification? Yeah, they're not really certifications. There's three levels of licenses, and they're... they're it's, it's almost paradoxical. You'd think an A license would be the highest, an A license is the lowest, a D license is, is the one that's the hardest to get. And uh, to get the D license, which used to be called an expert license, um, you have to do a number of things. You have to prove that you can land accurately, you have to prove that you can figure out exit points, you have to do many things that are signed off by people senior to yourself. And then you have to do a night jump and a water jump. I did several of, of them, but, um, and, you know, our night jumps were done on, on nights with pretty bright moons, and our water jumps were into nice, you know, warm lakes on, on uh, sunny days. So it, it sounds real commando-like, but in reality, it was, it was pretty, uh, pretty cushy. Can you walk us through your first night jump? It was in Southern California, and uh, it was, they deliberately planned these things on nights with a moon. The thing I was most worried about, I knew I could handle the landing okay. You know, they lit up the landing area with car headlights and so forth, and I knew I'd be okay. Um, what I really worried about is if I had a, a complicated malfunction, would I be able to see it and properly deal with it? And I think the answer is probably no. And so you're just praying that the parachute will open properly, and then it's just it's a low-light jump. It's nothing more than that. Um, but if you have an emergency, boy, I would hate to have a canopy emergency at night because I, I guess you... You know, what, what you worry about, there's something wrong with your canopy and you can't see it. You can't see it well. You carry a flashlight, but it's just not, not the same as daylight. And uh, you can also, it's real easy to get uh, disoriented at night. And, and there are people who've landed far away from the drop zone because they saw a set of lights that they thought was their drop zone and it wasn't. And you have to be really careful. You've got to land in the right place because if you don't, you're going to probably cross power lines on your way into the landing spot. And... It's, it's a lot more dangerous than a day jump. I mean, they try to minimize the risk, but there's no... I wouldn't do a night jump today. I don't see any reason to. I've done it. I got my license. Um, but uh, there's some people like to do them. They just find them exciting. There's people actually that have built fairly large formations at night, which is just spectacular. But that's... Uh, I think that's beyond my pay grade. Yeah, that sounds pretty crazy to do a formation at night. Yeah, well, they've done it. How about a water jump? Water jumps are pretty easy if there are uh, boats right next to where you'll land. Um, they, 
are nowhere near what like Navy pilots face when they eject over the ocean or something. That's a, a far more dangerous and daunting task than what we did. This was, you know, landing in in warm lakes and bright sunny days with boats right there to help you. It actually is very hard to get out of your harness. Uh, it's a lot harder than you think it is when you're in the water. And sometimes the canopy falls over you, and you're all tangled up in suspension lines and nylon. I didn't have that problem, but people have had it, and. Uh, the one thing that's really crucial is that you not um, slip out of your harness until your feet actually touch the water. There have been a number of skydivers killed. They're 100% sure they're just about to touch the water. They slip out of their harness on 200 feet up and die. And that's happened a lot of times. Um, it's very, very hard to judge your height accurately above water, just visually. In fact, it, the Navy uh, went back when they were flying uh, seaplanes Finally, they had so many crashes with people, you know, flaring to land and stalling the plane at 100 feet up that they instituted a new procedure where you just maintain a constant rate of descent, low rate of descent, but constant until you contact the water, rather than, you know, what people were doing before is estimating their height above the water, pulling back for a landing flare and stalling the plane 100 feet up. It's very, very difficult because, you know, what you're, you know, when I'm landing and there's, there's people, there's cars, there's things. The size of them tells me how high I am. When you're over water, it's, especially if there's not wave action or anything like that, 100 feet might look the same as one foot, you know, as far as your, your ability to visually estimate your altitude above the surface. Yeah, that's a good point. I could see that making sense. So the water jumps and night jumps that I did, I did a couple of each, uh, were fine. There was no big problem with them, but I did it in the least challenging way possible. <laughs> <laughs> right, just to check that box off. Just to check the box. All right, so your first jump was 1968. Yes. So there was a jump in 1971 that we're going to talk about. When did you hear about what D.B. Cooper did? Immediately. It was on, as soon as it hit the news, I mean, people, skydivers were calling each other about it. Um, and the only question we had is which one of us had done it because it was just inconceivable it could have been anyone other than a freefall parachutist. Um, and as as the story developed, um, the FBI actually did look very seriously into the skydiving committee. They went down to the headquarters of the United States Parachute Association, which was then located in Monterey, California, and pulled all the membership records. And they looked over everybody, which I was a member, so they probably looked at me. I was actually a little disappointed that I wasn't uh, interviewed. It was kind of a, a badge of honor to have been interviewed. And I think a lot of people lied about it. And the reason I think that is I know some people, I remember who they were, who swore that they had been interviewed by the FBI. And now that all the records have been produced through the Freedom of Information Act, there's no record they were ever interviewed. So <laughs> I think there were a lot of people bragging about being a suspect who were not actually looked at at all by the FBI. What were your first thoughts about about the jump conditions and, and everything like that when you heard about it? Well, it sounded like a very, very difficult jump. I would have been uh, really scared to do a jump like that, especially when you don't know the height of the terrain underneath you. And exiting out of a jet, um, I didn't even know if that was possible to do that that jump safely. Um, I didn't know how fast they were going. The the novelty, the uniqueness of the crime really struck me because I was all—I had always thought of parachutes as ways to escape, you know, a, a distressed aircraft. Or, I, I'd never thought about it as a way to escape from a crime. You know, to basically the scene of the crime is on the airplane. That's where you get the money, and then you escape from it. And the people in the airplane can't find you, and the people on the ground—they're not sure exactly where you jumped. And 
it just seemed to me to be a very innovative thing. I don't, uh, I don't exalt criminals. I don't, um, you know, I don't think what what he did was a great thing, but it was sure innovative. And thank goodness nobody was hurt or killed. And although some people think he was killed, had you ever heard of anybody making any sort of similar jump? No, I I hadn't. Had you ever heard of anyone jumping out of a seven twenty seven even? No, I didn't even know it was possible. And here's here's an interesting side. No, I'm really interested in aircraft and aviation and systems. And I started at an early age, actually around 1968, to collect aircraft manuals. And in 1971, I had a Boeing 727-100 manual. And there was nothing in it that indicated that door could be opened in flight. In fact, I thought since it was a pressurized aircraft, they'd have all sorts of measures to prevent the, uh, the rear air stair door from being able to be opened in flight. And so I was really puzzled. Like, I thought, how did he know he could get out of that airplane? I don't know that. And I have a 727 manual. In fact, had I depended on a manual, I would have concluded you could not get out of the airplane um, and parachute out the rear stairs. Um, of course, later we learned he ordered that it be flown depressurized and he had you know, speed limitations and all that. But it just, um, I was just amazed that, um, that the guy was able to pull it off successfully. And also the idea of, making a demand that money be brought to the airplane from a bank and then you jump out of the airplane. It just seemed to me to be really innovative. It certainly was. What about where he jumped? Were you familiar with the terrain in Gen the Pacific Northwest? Generally, and, and I thought it was worse than it actually is. Now that I know something more about the jump area, it's not as rugged as I thought it was. I thought, man, that's going to be tough. He's probably going to end up in the top of a 100-foot conifer and, you know, there's rocks all around and hills, and it just sounded a lot more daunting. Now that we have at least a general idea of where he exited, it's not it's not that bad. When you were talking to your buddies about this, what what, what were they saying? That did they think the consensus was he pulled it off and walked away? Or? Yeah, that was the consensus because we thought if you can get out of the airplane after that, it's just a jump and it's just a night jump, and the chances of of landing alive are really really good especially if you're an experienced parachutist. Um, what, what we were all doing is speculating who was it. It had to be one of us. And people knew each other. You know, I knew, I knew the guys who were jumping up at Snohomish Drop Zone in Washington and Lake Elsinore and Arvin and Taft. And there just weren't that many skydivers. And if you didn't know them directly, you knew, you knew about them. So there were, we figured it had to be a pretty experienced skydiver. And that, you know, cut it down a lot in, in number of candidates and some people thought it was Bill Doss who was uh, he's he's probably got more jumps than anybody in the United States he has that over 28,000 jumps now I think and he owned a drop zone and he was a pilot but it pretty clear it wasn't him people just thought that sounds like something he would have done I'm not sure I agree with that assessment uh, but he's way too short to uh, to be a viable suspect for that but that was some early speculation on that had to be bill doss and he runs he still runs the parachute center at lodi california um, but uh, he's he's not db cooper but <laughs> like many skilled parachutists he could have done it successfully there's a lot of people who could have done it successfully and sometimes when you're zeroing in on I, i'd rather call them candidates than suspects um, you think ability equals culpability and it doesn't you know unless you can put Unless you can put a, a candidate on that airplane, all you're doing is presenting ability, you know, and skills don't equal guilt. Definitely.
What did you think of his age when you heard that reported? Did you know a lot of 50-year-old skydivers in, in 1971? I don't remember what I heard exactly about his age, but everyone was thinking, you know, it was middle age, you know, 40s, something like that. There were a lot of people in their 40s jumping. Um, a lot of ex-military people were early skydivers, and um, so we're just trying to figure out who it was. And there, Lake Elsinore had kind of a reputation of having a bunch of bad boys down there. And maybe it's one of those Elsinore guys, you know, and... Uh, it was just a lot of speculation. A lot of names were thrown around about who it might be. Did you have any speculation other than Bill Doss on who? It I didn't might think be? it was Bill Doss. I just didn't think he would. He, he's he's a quirky guy, but I actually like him, and I don't think he's a criminal. I don't think he's a, that antisocial. Um, he's done an awful lot for skydiving, and uh, he's never committed, a, you know, a, that kind of a crime or. or you know, he's not a thief. He's not a bad guy. And uh, I just think a lot of people thought that just sounds like something Bill would do. I didn't agree with that, actually. So did you start to follow the story pretty closely in the very, news? Very, closely. And have you been following it very closely now for yeah, 48 I, I, years? I, I like air mysteries. You know, some people, uh, well, I, I saw an article in the local paper here in Portland that people have devoted their lives to this mystery. I haven't devoted my life to it. It's just it's just a sideline. It's a hobby. I have a day job. I have a life outside of the Cooper Vortex. Uh, but it's fascinating to me because uh, I like aviation mysteries, and there's a number of prominent ones. I mean, the Amelia Earhart one is the one everyone knows. But there's only one thing, there's only one component, there's only one uh, dimension to that mystery, and that is where's the plane? I don't think there's a chance in the world she was kidnapped by the Japanese and held prisoner and all these other wild conspiratorial theories. I think she was running out of fuel, navigation was off, they weren't where they thought they were, and they went into the ocean. And so there's just one dimension, where's the airplane? With Cooper, there's endless dimensions and, and rabbit holes that lead to rabbit holes that lead to doors. Who was he? Why did he do it? What happened? Where did he go? What was the motive? Um, it's just, it's really a multi-dimensional aviation mystery, and there's so much physical evidence, yet we can't even figure out to this day who he was. Uh, FBI, you know, they, they get a lot of criticism on the way they handle this case, but they did an awful lot of things right in this case. They immediately started looking in the right places and they uh, conducted a, uh, a simulation of the actual flight where they carried um, some ballast in boxes, I think it was. Or they called it a sled and they actually launched it from a 727 and uh, calculated trajectories and tried to figure out where this guy actually jumped. And so they did a lot of things right in this case. And it must be incredibly frustrating to them that America's uh, only unsolved skyjacking is, is uh, you know, still un unsolved to this day. And I think it must have been a little bit, um, not humiliating, but a little bit, um, let's say it wasn't their proudest day when they closed the case without arresting anybody. Right. Did you think when you heard about this that he would be caught pretty quickly? Oh, I, I was sure he would be. I thought it's there, there's just too much. I mean, there's so many people who saw him, and uh, you know he didn't seem to be wearing more disguise than sunglasses. And uh, I thought the universe of people who who could be DB Cooper is really really small. It's experienced freefall parachutists, and uh, they've got a general description of him. Um, and I thought, you know, if he died in the jump, it'll be immediately obvious. There'll be a car parked somewhere with a bunch of 
parking tickets on it. There'll be a mortgage that goes unpaid. There'll be a friend who isn't seen anymore. None of that happened. You know, they, they were looking for missing people that fit the description. They never came up with anything. So my conclusion is that he survived the jump and got away with it. I could be wrong. His body could have been decomposing at the bottom of the Columbia River, but I don't think that's what happened because if it did happen, there would be all those those events that happen when a person disappears. You know, they they have a life, they have bills that are due, they have a car, they have relatives. And if someone goes missing who generally resembled the sketches, I think people would put two and two together back in 1971 and they would have identified who it was. Yeah, I agree with you. I think there's more evidence that he survived the jump than there is that he died in the jump. Yes. So what about the flight path? Do you think the flight path is accurate? You know, I don't know. And the flight path actually doesn't interest me as much as it does a lot of other people. And there's no disrespect to them. They've put incredible amounts of energy and hard work and analysis into trying to figure out what the real flight plan was. But the flight plan doesn't identify who D.B. Cooper was. It just tells us where he exited. For me, the the most important uh, part of the case is who he was. And that doesn't directly relate to to solving the identity issue. the Tina Bar money find is fascinating to me, and I can't reconcile it with the flight plan that the majority of people agree on. That's the FBI flight plan. Um, I don't see how the money could have ended up there if, naturally, if, if the flight plan is as, as the FBI presented it then. But, um, and I actually own one of the Cooper $20 bills. I bought it at a charity auction. And I just wish it could talk. You know, I wish it could tell me how in the world did it get to Tina Bar, which is you know, upriver from from uh, the generally accepted flight plan. I I don't know what the real flight, fl- the actual flight path was. I, I I've heard <coughs> credible arguments that place it at three or four different places. You know, some vary by very little, and some are greatly divergent from the FBI flight plan. So I don't know. I I read all the. The publications, you know, the postings online that people write about the flight path and why they think theirs is right and the FBI's was wrong. And I read it with interest and respect, but personally, I don't know. I don't know what the flight path was. If you were going to make the jump that he made, is there anything that you would want to do or want to make sure that you had done? Like, for example, gloves and goggles? Um... I could do without gloves or goggles. I would want better footwear than he had, but I've jumped in loafers. It can be done. I think what I would have, what I would have liked to have known, and I'm, he may have known it, he may not have, but um, there were earlier parachute jumps done out of 727s over Karat, Thailand, during uh, the Vietnam War. And I've got a lot of documentation about those. They were static line jumps, and... Everybody thought that they would be really, really violent because the jet's going pretty fast compared to a slow, you know, like we were jumping out of DC-3s, Lockheed Lodestars, Beach-18s. Those are slow airplanes. 727, uh, you know, even even slow, they're pretty fast. And I thought it would be a very violent opening if you did a static line jump out of a 727. There were uh, films taken. Uh, they had a... Uh, what they call a Volpar trade wind. It was a re-engined Beach 18 with turboprops. It was a chase plane filming the 727 in those Karat jumps. The airline was Southern Air Transport, which was affiliated with the CIA and Air America. And uh, But what was amazing in, in the film of these jumps is how gentle the openings were. The parachutes, um, 
it's on YouTube. You can find it if you look up Southern Air Transport and 727 jumps. They, they call it squidding. They resemble a squid with sort of an elongated body and the suspension lines form the tentacles. And the openings were slow and gentle. We thought they would be violent and, and possibly even exceed the, the uh, capabilities of the canopies to stay intact, but they were actually pretty gentle. And that is the perfect way to get off a 727. If you don't have a static line, just stand on the stairs, face forward, pull the grip cord, the pilot chute pops out, and you're going to get the same kind of an opening. And that eliminates all the risk of instabilities during free fall. It eliminates the risk of exiting over high terrain and free falling right into it because you don't know it's there at night. So I would have, had I been DB Cooper, I would have felt a lot more confident about the jump had I known about those jumps in Thailand. And that made me think that DB Cooper might have had some connection with uh, either serving in Vietnam or knowing uh, that crowd. There was some interesting crossovers too in that the, uh, the civilian uh, contractors, you know, CIA, Air America, and Southern Air Transport, and some other outfits, they recruited smoke jumpers to do a lot of their paradrop operations, not to jump, but to manage the drops. And uh, so I thought, you know, is it possible that that Cooper was affiliated with one of these CIA operations or knew about these jumps? And we didn't hear about him in the U.S. At least the skydiving community didn't know about them in 19. 71 or even earlier there was much later that they came out and I just wonder if Cooper had the benefit of that knowledge and he'd be a lot more confident about jumping from a 727. Right that's a good question did he know about that going on at the time? Well I think Cooper had to know that you know it, um, he had to know he could get out of the uh, he wanted to take off with the ramp down and uh, everything and he didn't he actually had pilots said they couldn't do it and he said yes you can but he acquiesced anyway and let him take off so he had to know that he could get out of that airplane because if he didn't know for sure he was entering a, you know a cylindrical aluminum jail cell that would deliver him to the next place they landed and he would be arrested he had to know 100 percent for sure he could get out of that how did he know that how did he have that that knowledge and it, i think well he could have you know, he could have worked for boeing he could have worked for air america or southern air transport he could have just been incredibly lucky and just bet that he could get out, but boy, I, that doesn't sound very likely to me. You, I don't think you would do that unless you were 100% sure you could get out. Right, yeah, because I've heard you know Tom K say that it's an aluminum jail cell. Yeah, I, I'm the guy who coined that. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that is amazing. You know, he wants to take off with the rear stairs down, like you said. And then even then when they said, no, we're not going to do that because the plane's full of fuel... You know, they wondered, will the plane even fly, lowering the stairs in flight? Yeah, there's nothing in the, uh, in the flight manual that, that says that they can be lowered in flight, that the door can be opened in flight. That's all specialized knowledge. And it turns out that uh, Boeing actually did airdrop tests over Moses Lake, Washington. And it looks like those tests were uh, paid for by some government agency. Everyone speculates CIA. I don't know if it was Air Force or CIA. Somebody wanted to have flight tests done and using the Boeing 727 as a covert airdrop vehicle. So those were done. And had somebody been privy to those tests, they would have known a lot more than even the flight crew knew. The flight crew did not know any of that. They didn't know if the door could be open. They didn't know if it could be flown safely with the stairs down. I mean, the stairs are like an elevator, like a control surface. You would think they might impart a pitch down moment to the airplane. But uh, 
I think Cooper knew a lot more than the crew knew. And the crew had to actually call uh, Northwest Operations, Northwest Operations, and you know, they called Boeing, and Boeing said, yeah, as a matter of fact, it can be done. And the reason they knew that is they conducted these flight tests that I believe were paid for by the U.S. government. The static line jumps that you were talking about, do you know what speed the plane was traveling when they were doing that? I, I have to guess, you know, I, one thing that helped me calibrate a little bit is I know the top speed of that little turboprop conversion uh, airplane that, that was following them. My guess was under 150 miles an hour, probably not much under that, but around that speed, which is a lot faster than most people jump out of skydiving jump ships. How fast do people jump out of jump ships? Oh, 80, 90 miles an hour, 70 sometimes. Depends on how slow the pilot's willing to go. When, when I made my jet jump, I jumped in 2006. I jumped from a DC-9 uh, airliner over, uh, over the old Chinute Air Force Base in uh, Rantoul, Illinois. It's decommissioned. It wasn't Air Force Base, but all the infrastructure was still there, all the runways. We had a huge skydiving meet there. And the DC-9-21, which was a really hot rod version of the DC-9, flew in there and uh, took jumpers up. And uh, What speed was the plane Well, we down? wanted to go real slow, and the pilot basically told us to screw off. He was not going to get that plane real slow because he was worried that a bunch of us would bunch up at the rear of the airplane as center of gravity would get all off. And if you go into a stall and then a spin and your center of gravity is too far out, the spin is unrecoverable. So he basically said... I'm not going below. I can't remember what it was, 150 or 160 or something like that. Oh, wow, that's fast. Yeah, and, you know, that's it. You guys have to deal with it. I'm not getting that slow. It's just too dangerous. And what did you wear for that jump? Just regular parachute gear. Oh, you didn't wear a, a suit and a raincoat with loafers that time? No. <laughs> have you ever jumped in that? Because you said you jumped in loafers. I did jump in loafers once. I jumped in street clothes once. There was uh, somebody called me up and said, hey, they're doing 18,000 foot jumps at Monterey this evening. And I was about an hour away and they were gonna do the jumps around 6.30. And I was at work, I got off work at five. I didn't have time to go home and get my jumpsuit or anything. And so I showed up, you know, in like work clothes. And I just thought 18,000 feet back then was the highest I had ever been. And we had oxygen in the airplane. I was just, just so thrilled by it. I just thought I'll take my chances and uh, jumped in street clothes. And how was wearing loafers for that? Not a problem? Uh, not good. Um, they want to come off, you know, and, and you have to like arch your feet and keep them on. You can feel them wanting to come off your feet, and they're not great for landing, but it's doable. You know, it's it it wasn't uh, that big a deal. Do you think it would have been difficult for him to carry the briefcase bomb, the bag of money, and? his gear and jump out of a jet like yes, that? Yes, I do. Any, any asymmetry in the jump will, will put you into um, a spin or a flip or something like that. You're, you have to present a symmetrical um, silhouette to the, to the airflow. And they, they call it the relative wind. And if there's asymmetry in that, you're going to start turning or flipping or um, have uncontrolled freefall. So... I think it would be very difficult for him to carry all that stuff. I've jumped with asymmetrical loads. When we do these parachute radio, ham radio jumps, there's times where I have a big uh, thing strapped to my leg. It's only on one leg. And I have to fight that. You know, it wants to turn me or roll me or something like that. I have to compensate for that by adjusting uh, other parts of my body. So it's, it's not easy to jump with, you know, things hanging off you or holding on to things because pretty quickly it's going to throw, throw you out of uh, controlled, stable flight. 
So what would be the best way to pull that off? Well, I'd throw the bomb away. There's no reason to carry it. I don't think it was a real bomb anyway, but I'd toss that. I would toss everything except the money, and I would just... I would try to keep the money as close to my body as possible, lash it up really tight with some suspension lines or something, and uh, open as soon as I could, you know, preferably right off the stairways. And because uh, free fall, um, especially if you get into a spin or something, could, things can come undone and tangle up, and you just, you'd want to get under an open canopy as soon as you possibly could. So do you think he pulled while standing on the stairs or jumped from the stairs and then pulled? I don't know. Um, I know what I would have done, but I don't know what he did. What would you have done? I would have pulled on the stairs. I would have stood at the very bottom, face forward, pull. The pilot chute would have popped out of my back because it was spring-loaded. It would have caught the air. It would have pulled me off the stairs, and it would have had the same kind of opening that those guys had in the, in the Southern Air Transport 727 film that was shot over Karat, Thailand. What would be the disadvantage to free-falling from there? Well... At night, with no visual horizon, you could very quickly get into um, a spin. It's this idea that you can somehow feel that you're in a spin or something, that's, I mean, it's a myth. They wouldn't have uh, gyroscopes in airplanes, you know, gyroscopically controlled instruments and gyroscopically controlled autopilots. If you could feel your way, you wouldn't need any of that. Um, now, you can... And he could be jumping through cloud cover where he couldn't see any direction. Yes. Anyway. Yes. Now you can you can avoid uh, a certain you know there's a roll pitch and and yaw axis. Um, you can control the roll axis uh, as you're falling just by going into a spread eagle position and arching your body. You're not going to roll if you do that. But you have no way without a visual horizon and and a reference point to know whether you're turning or not. That's the yaw axis. So you could get into a pretty violent spin in the yaw axis if you didn't have some reference point to to fix on you know there's um so i would try to minimize the amount of time i had where it'd be subject to that kind of disorientation and resultant loss of control by opening the parachute as soon as possible if you get under an open canopy really quick all of that's irrelevant all of those risks cease to exist especially like you said within asymmetrical load yes and if he was an experienced skydiver, you would have known that. What do you think about his parachute choice? Because he had that military chute, and then he had a civilian sport chute that was well, delivered to the Well, there's some right? dispute about whether that's true. Bruce, oh, certainly. <laughs> Bruce, Bruce Smith is, is, I think he knows more about the choice of parachutes and what gear was actually there and who owned it. I think he knows more than anybody, including me. I think uh, you, know, you can attribute skill or luck um, to the fact that he... Uh, chose the one that had a C9 military surplus canopy in it. Um, but when you think about it, there were only two choices he had. So, you know, it could have been random. He could have just said, I'll take this one. Um, there's The C9 is absolutely the best canopy to make that jump with it. Even today with all this modern gear, I think if I had to make a jump into unknown territory at night, I wouldn't want a lot of forward speed that these square parachutes give you. I'd want to come as straight down as possible. And a C9 is a perfect canopy for that. Also, it can take a much uh, higher opening speed than the sport parachutes can. Most sport parachutes, are they have a placard on that says, do not exceed 150 mile an hour um, at deployment. And uh, if you go much above that, they can literally shred and, and disintegrate. The, the energy they have to dissipate goes up as the square of velocity. So it's not linear, you know, like... 
200 miles an hour isn't twice the stress of 100 miles an hour, it's four times. So uh, I think he, he made the right choice, whether that was through skill or luck, I, I don't know. One thing that's fascinated me is Richard Tosa, Tusa, I think is how his name is pronounced. He was a, a lawyer and a former FBI agent who was fascinated with the Cooper case and spent a lot of his own money and time trying to find uh, who Cooper was and actually trying to find his body. Um, and he wrote in his book that the stewardess, uh, Tina Mucklow, noticed Cooper pulling the packing cards out of the parachute rigs and reading them. And if he did that, that greatly narrows the uh, universe of who he could have been because very few people even know that parachute rigs have packing cards. And in the NB-8 or NB-6, they differ only in size, um, harnessing container rig that uh, he had. They're very, very well hidden. They're extremely hard to find. I'll bring a, uh, an NB-8 to the convention tomorrow and you'll see how how well hidden the packing card is. The packing card will tell you what parachute is inside the pack. And I asked uh, uh, Ralph Himmelsbach, he was an FBI agent, um, whether that was true that, um, that Cooper had examined the packing cards. And he, he said basically that Tucson made it up, that there was nothing in the, in the records of interviews with any of the witnesses that substantiate that he was looking at packing cards. But Tucson, you know, I can't see that he was the type of person who added fiction to that that book that he wrote. So it that came from somewhere. And Tucson didn't know what a packing card was. So where did he get it? You know, it's um, it's it's a puzzle to me. But if if that's true, then Cooper made an educated choice. And in my opinion, he couldn't have chosen a better parachute. The the twenty eight foot C nine canopy is the pit bull of all canopies. It's stronger. It's super reliable. It it has the right uh, descent profile for that kind of a jump, in my opinion. If you're flying forward at 25 miles an hour, as you would under typical square parachute, that means if you don't stop that forward speed with a flare, you're going to slam into something. You could slam into a tree trunk. You could slam into a, a structure. If you come down under a C9, especially an unmodified one that doesn't have any forward drive, you know, you're going to be going to the speed of the wind, which is going to, you know, give you some ground speed. But in still air, you're going to come straight down. And uh, I just think it was the right canopy for the jump. Let me ask you this, that about looking at those packing cards. If I only had military experience, would I be looking for the packing card? Or is that something you think that mostly a, a sport parachutist would be looking at? I don't think military... Well, first of all, paratroopers had totally different kinds of equipment. They weren't anything like what Cooper used. And the kind of gear Cooper used was an emergency parachute, and the air crew used them. And they don't, you know, they don't care about packing cards. They just care that the thing's well-maintained. They don't look at the packing cards. Sport parachutists do look at packing cards, so they want to see who packed it. What You have to jump with, with something that was packed by an FAA licensed rigger. The FAA doesn't care what our main parachutes are, skydivers. They just want one of our parachutes to be properly inspected and approved, and that's our reserve chute. But when you have an emergency chute, that's the only chute you have, so that has to be packed by a rigger and inspected and has to have a packing card. So sport parachutes look all the time at reserve packing cards. And um, in fact, when you go to the drop zone, they often want to see the packing card to make sure you're current on repack cycles. In fact, last time I went out, they wanted to see mine. So it's always puzzled me and fascinated me. You know, 
did Cooper actually look at a packing card? If he did, I would bet that he's a skydiver. That's interesting. I hadn't thought of that before. Do you think that uh, the sport parachute is most likely a pioneer model? Is that? Well, I'm really not sure what the sport parachute was. I, I mean, uh, the guy who owned them said they were both bought at a surplus store and they were the same kinds of canopies, which would imply they were both 28-foot C9s or very possibly, but I think less likely, the Navy equivalent of that, which was a 26-foot conical canopy. Same kind of construction, different shape, smaller diameter. But I think the evidence is pretty good that it was a C9. And uh, I think the other parachute, people have speculated that it was a sport parachute. I really doubt that it was. I don't think sport parachutes can be legally used as emergency parachutes. It has to be, I think there's a technical safety order, the TSO, that the FAA has. And uh, you can have a steerable TSO emergency canopy, but the, a lot of these sport canopies are not approved for emergency use. What do you think of the fact that the reserve he took was a dummy. I don't know what to make of that. First of all, he wasn't. The reserves could serve no useful function in arresting a vertical descent because there was no way to attach them to these Navy, um, these Navy NB8 or NB6 um, harness containers. A lot of people talk about an NB8 or NB6 parachute. There's no such thing. They just describe the harness and the container for the parachute. The canopy is a totally different animal. Um, I really, I don't know what the reason was that he took that. It might have been that just he wanted to use it as a container. He obviously didn't care what it's, and it didn't matter what its aeronautical characteristics were because there was no way to attach it to the, the main parachute that he put on. Would you have made that mistake? I'm not sure it was a mistake. No, I, I, if I had a choice between a good parachute and a, and a dummy one, of course, I would take the good one. Just even if I couldn't use it, I just think, well, maybe I could use it somehow. I could hold on to it or something, which isn't true. But um, I'm really not sure. I don't so know. if it doesn't attach to the parachute, then what does he do with it? He could use it as a shelter. You know, if he thought there was a usable canopy in there, he could use it as a container to, I don't know, to bury stuff in or to transport it away from his landing site. He had some use for it, but I'm not sure what that use was. Because he cut up a third parachute to get the lines out of it, but then took the sewn-up dummy with him. That's what people say. So, I, And I don't have a good answer. I don't have answers to a lot of things in this case. <laughs> and that's one of them, Darren. <laughs> I don't think a lot of people have answers to anything in here. Well, it's tempting to make up a story that accounts for every, you know, every mystery and every unknown uh, fact and so forth but there's a lot of things in this case i can't answer this one of them especially is where that money was found i just it just doesn't make sense to me yeah the tina bar money fine is just baffling and mm -hmm. there's really no good explanation well everybody thinks they have a good explanation people say it was dredged spoils people say it was buried there by cooper and he, he accidentally at night left three bundles of 20 dollar bills stacked on each other as people say he planted it there, as people say, but Brian Ingram's father put it there to see. He actually had all the rest of the money, but he wanted to see what would happen if an innocent kid found some of it. Would it be seized by the FBI? Would it be claimed by the insurance company that insured Northwest Airlines? There's a million explanations, but who knows? You know, we just don't know. It's, it's a puzzle. And the fact that they ended up stacked on top of each other, uh, you know, that... 
that's puzzling to me. I mean, I don't. How could you inadvertently leave three, three stacks there? Um, how could they be transported there by dredge? I mean, they go through a big, violent centrifugal pump. How would they end up perfectly stacked on top of each other after going through that and then going through a effluent pipe? Right, with the rubber bands still intact. Yeah, but you know, strange things happen. I mean, I've seen live fish come out of the. Uh, I grew up in commercial fishing, and a lot of the ports we go into that are being dredged and. Um, I saw live, fairly good-sized uh, fish come out of the, the dredge pipe one time. I thought, how in the world did that get through the pump alive? And it was alive. I threw it back in. <laughs> <laughs> Must have been a rough few minutes for that fish. Yeah. What do you think uh, D.B. Cooper did once he hit the ground? I think he realized that he would have a few hours of confusion and, and uh, disorganization and... and there wouldn't be any effective search going on for him for a few hours, and he would utilize that time to get as far away from the area where the FBI thought he might be as he could. And I think that was a smart thing to do. Do you think if he pulled his parachute right away, or, or standing on the stairs, that the F-106 following could have seen that? No, I don't. I don't. Not especially at night. Um, I, I don't think there's much chance at all that they would have seen it. And there's no reason to risk free falling when you're not sure what the elevation of the ground is below. Well, you, you could free fall for a few seconds. Nothing horrible is going to happen in a couple of seconds. But an extended free fall, you run a, a high risk of colliding with terrain that you thought was a lot far further below you than it actually was. Now, you'd know that an airliner wouldn't be flying 200 feet above the mountains. You'd have a certain amount of uh, altitude above terrain that you could assume, but... Um, you know, shoot, I wouldn't. I wouldn't do a twenty-second freefall. I think you could be taking your life in your hands. So, if you you pretty much concur, the flight path's probably accurate, or you're not too concerned with it. I really don't know. I mean, uh, I've heard some very good arguments from from people whose logic I respect that that flight path is all wrong. And the problem is, is, is everybody has a pretty good argument. You know, the, <laughs> um, but it, it, the flight path just doesn't interest me as much as it does some people because it doesn't tell me who Cooper is. I want to know who he is. Why is everything up for debate in this case? Why are there no hard facts? Why can't we say, here exactly is where the flight path is. Here exactly is where he landed. Here's exactly the parachutes he had. Because there's contradictory evidence in the record and there's contradictory facts on the ground. Like where the money was found does not line up. It does not correlate with the FBI flight path. Could they both be accurate? Well, they could if somebody took the money from some other place and brought it there. So you get all these, these contradictory things and then people invent ways to resolve the contradictions. And by invent, I don't think, I'm not saying falsify it. They just come up with, with logical explanations, but they're all different. And only one of them's right, but you don't have any way of knowing which one is right. Right, that's a very good point. You have, you make a logical argument for how something happened, but it's in a lot of cases it's kind of to fit that person's narrative, okay. to make it fit their suspect. Right. And there's a lot of argument about whether there was a, a vertically and horizontally distributed um, shard field, you know, shards being little pieces of currency. And if if there was a large volume and it was distributed through a, a you know, a good bit of vertical and horizontal distribution, then it's really unlikely that that was buried there. That sounds like dredge spoils, you know, when you get uh, that big a uh, uh, distribution of currency shards. But then, I mean, that would say dredge, yes, but the stacked 
you know, rubber banded uh, bill bundles say no. So, uh, and it could be that we don't understand dredging. I mean, my my anecdote doesn't. I, I don't know much about dredging. I know I know what kind of pumps they use. I know what you know, how they handle the effluent, where where they put it. Um, but I don't know. I mean, you should talk to some dredger men. They they know a lot about what goes through those pipes because they see all sorts of them. I heard somebody say they saw a small TV set come out of one intact. Hmm. So I just don't know. The thing that really interests me is who he was. And the flight path just, people get obsessed with the Tina Bar money. And I, I admit I share some of that obsession. But that doesn't tell you who, who Cooper was. And to me, the more interesting information uh, is is probative of his identity or tends to push you in that direction. And who do you think D.B. Cooper was? I really have no idea. We've identified a number of highly qualified candidates. I mean, Sheridan Peterson absolutely could have done it, but there's zero evidence that he was ever on that airplane. Zero. And, uh, oh, you know, McCoy, it could have been McCoy, but there's zero evidence that, that he did it earlier that he was actually D.B. Cooper in the first instance and Richard McCoy in, in the second hijack. Uh, Ted Braden, um, who uh, was a, a Special Forces um, halo parachutist in Vietnam and did some incredible night missions penetrating deep into North Vietnam and doing, uh, actually tapping telephone lines at night and doing all sorts of espionage and intelligence work. Um, he absolutely had the skills to be D.B. Cooper. And a lot of people that were in the, uh, I think it was called M-A-C-S-O-G, something special operations group, a lot of people think he was D.B. Cooper. Um, he had some very interesting things happen. He deserted in, in wartime and ended up as a mercenary in the Congo. He was found, caught, brought back, court-martialed. And uh, John Singlaub, who was, I think, Army Chief of Staff, I don't know what the, the right nomenclature was, personally intervened and got him restored to his rank and back in the Army. That's something's weird about that. Oh, yeah. I, I spoke to uh, a gentleman, I can't remember his name off the top of my head right now, but uh, who was a guard at Fort Bragg, I believe. Mm -hmm. Fort, yeah, Fort Bragg, where he was being held, and said that he had received special treatment the whole time he was there and then was just mysteriously let go. And they all just kind of looked at each other like, okay, somebody's looking out for this Ted Braden guy. What gave there? You know, that doesn't make him D.B. Cooper, but he had something on somebody or there was something they did not want him to get sideways with them about. They, I mean, usually desertion during wartime, and they execute people for that. And instead, he was given kid glove treatment. He was actually reinstated. Yeah, I mean, not just he didn't just go AWOL. He was working as a mercenary in another country. Yeah. And that, that itself smacks of, you know, three-letter agencies. I mean, it, yeah. it just doesn't sound like something he would have done just on a lark. But who knows? And there are many other people who, uh, who had the qualifications to do it. Um, I can, there's probably a dozen people who, who could have done it. Um, but in the absence of evidence that puts the person on the plane, you know, I used to work as a criminal defense attorney early in my legal career. They don't have enough to even arrest somebody, let alone convict them. Um, the, the circumstantial evidence they have against people, uh, none of it puts them on the plane. You know? and, and let's say a person lies about some aspect of an alibi. That doesn't put them on the plane. It just means they lied. So it's very possible that not one of the people whose name has been thrown about it really is D.B. Cooper. 
what I think will happen, I'm an optimist, is that Cooper will eventually be identified. And the only way that will happen is if the legend is kept alive through things like this conference and through things like the D.B. Cooper Forum online. Someday somebody is going to find a stack of $20 bills or some physical evidence that will mean nothing to them if they don't know about the D.B. Cooper case. And so one, you know, I, do I think we've solved the case? I do not think we've solved the case. Do I think we're serving an important function? Yes, I do. I think that without events like this and without a community like this, the legend will die. It's not, it doesn't have the stay power of the Amelia Earhart uh, mystery. So it needs to be pumped up. It needs to be republished. It needs to be kept alive so that someday somebody's going to come across something that will link a particular person to the crime. And unless they know about the relevance of that, unless they know who D.B. Cooper was, it will just end up in the trash or it will end up being spent or whatever. Why do you say that this doesn't have the, the staying power of Amelia Earhart? You know, maybe it's because I'm already so deep into this, but I think this is like the most fascinating unsolved mystery. Oh, I think it's more fascinating than Amelia Earhart one. But Amelia Earhart, she has much more popular appeal than D.B. Cooper. D.B. Cooper was very appealing to, you know, stick it to the man, that kind of crowd in the you know, late 60s, well, although his happened in the 70s. Um, I think without, um, you know, History Channel, without these books like, you know, Bruce's book and other people's books. And even people like Bradley Cooper, uh, I don't think his father was D.B. Cooper. Bradley Collins. Collins, I mean. Yeah, I don't think his father was D.B. Cooper, but it's worth a look. You know, he Bradley made a lot of mistakes in his book, factual mistakes, but that doesn't mean his father should be just completely disregarded. He gets almost no attention at all from the Cooper crowd, but um, he, he had a lot of the skills needed to do this. He also had money trouble. Yeah, and then Brad says that he had some money shortly after, you know, yeah. re, uh, remodeled the house, bought a new car, bought a boat. Yeah. And the picture that he has of his dad and his uncle standing next to the plane, and his dad's like doing the Captain Morgan pose with the sunglasses on, that's a great picture. It is. I love looking at that. I mean, it's possible that one of these people that I've named is D.B. Cooper, but I, you know... Like Sheridan Peterson, I, I offered to defend him for free if he was ever indicted. You know, I said, I can get that case dismissed. There's not a chance he'll end up in, in prison, you know. Um, of course, you know, he's uh, he, he's he's an interesting guy. He's uh, absolutely could have done it, but no evidence that he did it. And also, no prior criminal history. I think it's kind of unlikely that this would be the person's first crime. So... You look at somebody like, uh, oh, who was the guy in uh, in Washington? The guy was indicted for all those student skydiver deaths. Oh, what was his, his name? His name's escaping me at the moment. It wasn't Mayfield. Yeah, Teddy Mayfield. It was Ted Mayfield, yeah. yeah. Ted, Teddy Mayfield. I mean, he had a prior he had prior conviction for armed robbery. And uh, so, you know, that I, th- I think it's much more likely that, that whoever Cooper was, this wasn't his first rodeo. You know, this wasn't his first uh, serious crime. And well, and I suppose a lot of the, the skydiving crowd, especially in the late 60s, early 70s, they're the daredevil type who you know, most likely have a criminal record. Well, I'm sure a lot of the guys you jumped with had trouble with the law here and there. They had a lot of trouble with the law, but I don't think it was really hard. And I was a criminal defense lawyer starting in uh, 1975. And I was jumping a lot then. Um, the, the, you know, we get lots of visits to the drop zone from sheriffs and uh, 
everybody always said, we don't know who the guy is, you know, when he was standing right next to him. And they, they were mostly looking for, for child support payments. It wasn't like looking for arrest warrants. There were people in uh, skydiving who had uh, criminal backgrounds. A lot of it was drugs, you know, it was, uh, you know, marijuana, cocaine, things like that. There weren't, I didn't see any heroin addicts in skydiving, but I saw a lot of cocaine abuse in, in the early days of, of my jump career. So I, I just think, like, with Sheridan Peterson, no prior criminal record at all, nothing, zero. Um, so to me, that makes it a lot less likely that he would be Cooper. Besides, he eschews violence, and that was a pretty violent thing to threaten to blow up a plane, and it seems to be, um, just seems to be out of character. And I could go through other lists of candidates and say reasons they could or couldn't be, but a lot of people just say, okay, if you have the skills and you told some lies. The lies prove that you're evading something, and what you're evading must be associating you with being on the plane or somehow um, make you, um, tie you to the case. But it could just be someone who's highly skilled and is lying about something, but they're not Cooper. And people kind of miss that sometimes. They just say, okay, this person was highly skilled, and they lied about something to the FBI or to someone else. Therefore, they got to be Cooper. I don't subscribe to that theory. Do you think it's more likely that it's a name we haven't heard than one of the, to use your term, candidates versus suspects, which I really like, by the way, candidates? I really don't know. Um, it could it could easily be one of the people that's already identified. I mean, Sheridan Peterson was probably the first suspect. To, it was a suspect because it was the FBI. To me, he's candidate, the FBI suspect. They, they got a tip on him really, really early, very shortly after the thing took place. Um, but, you know, they wanted to solve the case. If they, if they thought they had the right person, I think they would have pursued it to, to an arrest and, and a, a prosecution. I just, I don't know. It could be one of the people who's already been identified. It also could be somebody who nobody knows. I mean, they did, nobody's ever heard of him. You know, it wasn't a wasn't big deal in skydiving circles. It could even be someone who never skydived. That's possible. With your courtroom experience, do you think that this could be prosecuted today? Absolutely not. Well, it would be prosecuted, but not successfully. If the FBI truly lost those cigarette butts, I think that's a that's fatal to a, to a prosecution. There's uh, a doctrine called spoliation of evidence. The prosecution is required to to preserve uh, all evidence that they collect in a case, not just evidence of guilt or innocence, but all evidence. And if they uh, fail in their their custodial duties of preservation, um, they have potentially deprived an innocent. Uh, defendant of the ability to to be exonerated through physical evidence. So the the cigarette butt, you know, the tie has DNA on it. There's no certainty that that's Cooper's DNA. DNA on those cigarette butts, cigarette butts is 100% certain that it's Cooper's DNA. Now, if it uh, if it didn't match a prosecuted suspect, that's, you know, that's a dismissal. But so if you lose it, You've deprived a defendant of their right, um, you know, to present evidence as exculpatory, and I think uh, most federal judges would throw out the case based on that. It would be a motion to dismiss based on spoliation of evidence. If they didn't, um, I think the jury instructions on spoliation of evidence are very favorable to the defendant. They basically allow jurors to infer that evidence that was mishandled or lost was exculpatory. I think the FBI would still love to solve the case, but they've basically said they're not going to look at anything unless you can put the person on the plane or, or show the parachute. What do you think it would take to solve the case? 
Um, well, it could be they find, you know, a big stack of crisp 20s that match the serial number list in somebody's possession or in somebody's the deceased person's uh, personal belongings. I think that would be very probative evidence. You could then go further and find other links. But, uh, and something like that actually would vitiate the effect of the spoliation of the cigarette butt evidence. If something else proved guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, it doesn't matter that they lost the cigarette butts. But there doesn't seem to be any evidence like that out there. But that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It could mean it just hasn't been found yet. Right, yeah, and there wasn't a, a good way for them to track the money even. So it would be interesting if somebody did have a stack of, well, of $20 bills. Well, we know, what, about $5,800 was found. The rest is somewhere. <laughs> Why do you think so many people have confessed to this? I think associating yourself, and sometimes it's not you who does it, it's someone else like a... You know, a woman has a loser boyfriend or a loser husband who's never really done anything significant. Um, you know, they'll say, well, I mean, one thing is he was working undercover. You know, that's, that's, he wasn't a deadbeat. He was a CIA agent. Well, even better than that, he, he was D.B. Cooper. You know, this guy you thought was nobody. He was a mastermind criminal, you know. Um, but when people confess to it themselves, a lot of the people who confess, I think, they want to be heroic, and their lives are pretty empty. They haven't accomplished much, and this this is a real quick ticket to uh, to fame. And it's also very safe to do because if you weren't D.B. Cooper, there's no way they're going to convict you. So that's my theory. I'm not a psychologist, and I, it might be a very amateurish explanation of why people do it. But uh, there have been a number of people who who have confessed to the crime, and I don't think any of them were D.B. Cooper. <laughs> what about accusing somebody of being D.B. Cooper? Is there Could there be legal ramifications there of that? There could be. You know, slander, libel, all the defamation laws come into play. But um, pursuing a civil lawsuit against somebody is expensive. The chances of a contingency lawyer taking that you know, without any money up front are really low. So a bunch of people threaten litigation and threaten lawsuits and so forth. Nothing ever happens, and I don't think it will. Um, and people are kind of careful about actually accusing people. They'll say, I think, you know, this person was D.B. Cooper, or they might be, or so forth. Um, and also the, the burden is on the plaintiff, the person who, who was slandered, to prove economic damage. You can't just make a claim that, you know, I want a million dollars because you said I was D.B. Cooper. You have to show that you were economically harmed. You have to quantify it. Um, I think it would be pretty hard to show a lot of actual damage comes from being called D.B. Cooper. Someone called me D.B. Cooper. I say, thanks for the compliment. Right. Is and there any... Not, not to be uh, you know, complimenting criminals, but it, it was a highly skilled, highly innovative uh, thing that he did, and that's what I was referred to, and thanks for the compliment. I don't think it's right to steal. I don't think it's right to threaten to blow up people. I think people were very scared on that airplane that he, he was going to jump out and the bomb would detonate after he left. That was, I think they were under a lot of stress for a while. Is there any legal issue in accusing somebody who's dead? Yes. Uh, their estate could probably sue. I'm not an expert in that area of law, but I imagine there's something that would survive death where you could say that the, uh, the estate would have a claim. But all of those things are just, there's a lot of talk and no action. I don't think you'll ever see a, a complaint filed, a, a subpoena issued, a summons issued. And, you know, it's just not going to happen. There's just not, there's not enough money into it. Lawyers... Um, contingency lawyers want cases that 
you know, they're put a lot of money and, and time into something where they get no upfront money. They want a big payoff, and there's, there's not a big payoff in it calling somebody D.B. Cooper. That's probably true. And then they would have to weirdly prove that their relative wasn't Cooper. Well, you don't, you don't really have to do that. You have to, it, it has to be a false statement, so I guess you'd have to show that it was false. It's just, it's so unlikely that any of those cases will ever become actual litigated filed cases. It's so low, it's not even worth spending much time on. Hmm. And you see, it, I, I've seen so many threats of lawsuits on, on the various online forums. Not one has been filed. <laughs> yeah, I've seen quite a few of those too. What do you think of the fact that there are two different sketches of, of D.B. Cooper and they look pretty different? Well, I don't know. I, I here's here's the thing with those the composite sketches and the you know, crime artist sketches and all that. I when I did criminal defense, um, I saw cases where the, the the right person was later arrested, and they didn't look anything like the witness description, either the the written description or the composite uh, drawing that was prepared in in cooperation with between an artist and a and a crime victim witness. And then I saw cases where they look very much alike. Um, so some people are pretty good at eyewitness identification. Other people are terrible, but there's no way to tell which one is which. So uh, I think Tina spent far more time with Cooper than anyone else. Whether that's an accurate sketch, I just I don't know. Um, they, they differ, but not by a huge amount. They don't, to me, look like two different people. Uh, I, I don't. I don't have an explanation why why it was modified. I mean, one came after the other. I don't know why changes were made. Do you think that the fact that there are so many candidates or suspects out there being pushed that it that it hurts the case from actually being solved? No, I don't. I think the I think it's unlikely that any of us will prove that any of our candidates or any of the candidates are DB Cooper, but we're performing a valuable function by keeping the legend alive. Um, I think people who have their favorite candidates, it's really hard to identify and, and eliminate your own bias. Like when you make, you know, when you discover someone no one else has found before you and it looks like they could be Cooper, you tend to ignore evidence that shows that they weren't. And you, you, you just, you want everything to line up with this discovery you've made. So um, I, I don't think that, um, any harm is done by people pushing their candidates. Even, I mean, like Marla Cooper's candidate, you know, her, her uncle. L.D. Cooper. Yeah, I don't think L.D. was, was D.B. Cooper. But I actually think Marla was sincere. A lot of people think she was a charlatan. I don't. I think she was sincere in, in her assertions, her beliefs, and her memory. Um, I agree. And I think that she actually did a huge service to the keeping the legend alive. I mean, she lit up the room in the newspapers and... TV and international TV when she came forward with her case. And in that way, I think she's done a great service. Um, you know, whether her uncle was D.B. Cooper or not, it, it lit up the case and, and the embers are still glowing from what she did. Do you think this case will be solved? I do. I, I really do. I'm a huge optimist. and I've obviously genetically passed that on to my son. I've got a funny little anecdote when when he was uh, little, I think he was about four, we were walking in a kind of an industrial area of San Francisco. It was evening time. And he spotted what turned out to be a $20 bill. And he didn't, 
to him, there were just dollars. He said, Daddy, is that a dollar? It doesn't look like a dollar. I said, no, it's more than a dollar. He said, how much more? And we asked, and he said, well, whose was it? I said, there's literally no way to tell. There's no way to get it back to his was. He said, can we keep it? I said, I think we can. And, um, you know, I was going to teach him lessons about, you know, donating some of it to a charity and all that, but that was that was not what he was interested in at the moment. I think he was thinking how many toys he could buy. But um, So we kept walking, and I said, well, it's time to turn around and head for home. And he, he's, he just looked crestfallen. He said, no, Daddy. And I said, why not? He said, well, we'll find another one. I mean, that's the kind of optimism that that I have and that was passed on to him. I do think this case will be solved. I think somewhere somebody has evidence. They don't realize what it is. It's probably in some stashed away belongings. And whoever D.B. Cooper was, he'll be dead. He either died or will be dead soon. It's just like there won't be any 200-year-old World War II soldiers. And so the time will come when D.B. Cooper absolutely has to be deceased. Somebody may find something. And I think it will be something like that, maybe a posthumous uh, artifact that will lead to the solution in this case. But I do think it will be solved. There's just, there's too much evidence for it never to be solved. There's, there's um, descriptions, there's physical evidence, there's the money, there's all the amazing things that, that, uh, that, Tom found on that tie, uh, Tom K. And some, you know, I, I, I got my, my undergraduate degree in electrical engineering and computer science, and the latest thing on artificial intelligence, people think you can just throw a zillion facts into an AI machine and it will solve any question. That's not the way it works. But artificial intelligence and, and big data do hold a lot of promise for solving this case. They might someday be able to figure out um, correlations between things that don't even look connected that would help us solve this case. So I'm not saying that AI will solve it, but it's certainly going to be a tool just the way forensic uh, DNA evidence became a tool after that, after he committed the crime. It wasn't at the time he committed, but it later became a valuable tool in solving cases. And I think AI holds some promise in, in providing additional tools to resolve this enduring mystery. You're a pretty accomplished guy. Undergrad degrees in electrical engineering? Yeah, I, was, I have diverse interests. <laughs> and then a criminal defense lawyer jumped out of a plane a thousand times. What do you think of the evidence on the tie? You yeah. know, since you have a background in electrical engineering, what do you think the evidence on the tie says? Well, one thing it says, and, and I I'm often defend the FBI's work in this case, but it doesn't look like they did a very good job at even looking at the tie with optical microscopy. There's a lot of things on that tie that didn't take a scanning electron microscope to see, like you know, aluminum turnings and things like that. It didn't take a spectroscope to, to see. They should, have, um, they should have done more. And the thing that worries me is the tie has been carelessly handled. You know, they let other people touch it. They let, um, it's, it's possible that tie was contaminated after it was taken off the airplane, but I think, assuming the tie was Cooper's, and I think it's a pretty fair assumption that it was, there's a un really unusual conglomeration of, of unusual things on there. I mean, you have, you have bismuth. That's an unusual element. Um, you have uh, rare earth elements, um, yttrium. You have aluminum turnings. You have not alloyed titanium, but pure titanium. Uh, it's funny, what, I, I talked to some material scientists, um, you know, I, I worked in high tech. After 
being a criminal defense lawyer, I became a, a, a tech lawyer, worked in Silicon Valley, and I never miss an opportunity to talk to some material scientists about the, the collection of unusual things on the tie. And one guy told me, he said, there's no one source that accounts for all this. This, this, is, a, this is an aggregation, this is a collaboration. You know, look for some sort of place that processed uh, you know, tech industry waste or maybe even, you know, if any of these things are isotope related, maybe a, a, a nuclear waste processing facility, he said, your chances of, of finding one source for all these things is almost zero. This is, this is an aggregation from different sources. So look for somebody who worked in a business that aggravated, ag aggregated these. Boy, that's interesting. I hadn't heard that before. I hadn't either. I, you know, I know Tom K was pretty interested in Tektronics because they had the, the color CRTs and some of the uh, yttrium is used uh, in connection, I think, with, with red, red color phosphors or something. I could have that backwards. But um, I, think, I think the tie uh, is a very very valuable piece of evidence. And I think Tom K deserves a huge amount of credit for, for spotting it and then analyzing it and then getting it uh, even done uh, to a higher degree of, of accuracy and so forth by Macron. Um, I, I, think, I think when the mystery is solved, that tie will make sense. It doesn't make sense right now. but Kind of like the Tina Bar money? Yeah. Like once we have the answer, we'll go. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I could see it. Tom and and Al and you know, their, their crew must have been just sure that as soon as they spotted that stuff, we're going to solve the case. There's only one place where all these things could be, and it just hasn't turned out that way. But that doesn't diminish the value of what he's done. It's it's huge. I'm a big fan of his, and I think he uh, he deserves a lot of credit. Um, and he's. Uh, for some reason, on, in the online world, people attack each other all the time. There's just, there's no call for that. And what he did was, he shared the information with people. He hasn't tried to profit off it. And even if he did, I wouldn't begrudge him that. Um, it's uh, yeah, he's put his own money into this. He put a lot of money into it. And he's he's an impressive guy. And his partner uh, Al is too. The, those guys, and it impresses me as an electrical engineer. They took scrapped early um, scanning electron microscopes. That use you know integrated circuits and the digital process and everything that aren't even made anymore. I mean, you have to go find them in old equipment, and they keep them running by themselves. I mean, they have garage SEM scanning electron microscopes that are vintage. I mean, if you bought one today, the price would be astronomical. But they got these things probably for near nothing. And the amazing thing is that they're resourceful and sharp enough to keep them running, and uh, that impresses me a lot. Do you think there's any chance that this is a, a government-sanctioned operation? Absolutely not. You know, it's it's really easy when you can't solve a mystery that, that borders on anything with the government, and this arguably does. I mean, it it's very likely the person had some some association with the military, you know, either in or around it. Um, and you can't solve the case. You say, well, it's a CIA operation. It's a black operation. That's why we can't solve it. Uh, I think the chances of that are extremely likely, unlikely. The chances that it was actually orchestrated by the CIA, which some people say, I think is zero. The chance that it was orchestrated as a way to justify the imposition of all these security restrictions on airline travel, they didn't have to have a hijacking to do that. They can just do it. Um, so I think this idea that it was a black op, that it was government sanctioned, government conducted, I think uh, I, I pay no attention to those. Have you heard the E. Howard Hunt theory? 
Yes, I have. <laughs> what do you think of that? I think it's highly unlikely. I mean, some people thought also it was Hunter Thompson, the uh, the author, you know. I hadn't heard that before. Yeah. yeah, and some people thought it was Rod Serling. He had actually been a paratrooper and looks a lot like the sketch. You know? Hunter Thompson. Okay, now Hunter Thompson's my new favorite suspect because I'm a big Hunter Thompson fan. But yeah. that's wild. I hadn't heard him compared to uh, D.B. Cooper before. Where did you hear that? Oh, it was on the drop zone many, many years ago. Oh, it's, that's a good place for that. Yeah, it's... Uh, I don't think it was anybody famous or you know well known, but it it was. I wish you know a lot of people thought the uh, Don Draper the Mad Men uh, would end with a revelation that Don Draper was DB Cooper because some of the falling in the, in the graphics that precede every episode looks a lot like Freefall and he looked a lot like Cooper. I just wish they had done that because that more than anything would have kept the legend alive for a long, long time because. There was a huge interest in, in Don Draper and Mad Men, more than there is in D.B. Cooper. But uh, I think uh, I think the case will be solved. I'm, I'm optimistic. But it's like my son is optimistic about finding that second $20 bill. <laughs> Might not happen. Right. Yeah, I, that's an interesting way to approach it, that you wished Mad Men would have ended that way just because it would have made more publicity for the case. Yes. I remember when that was show was coming to an end and people were speculating that. I actually felt the opposite way, but it was... I just because I was like I don't want well, the show to end that way because it even makes sense to me. It would have been a really spectacular ending. Instead, they have that insipid Coke commercial. You know, <laughs> I'd like to give the world a Coke or whatever that thing was. Yeah, uh, uh, I think it would have been a far more dramatic and, and satisfying end. But let that be. Well, Mark, is there anything we haven't covered? I, I hope this will eventually. You know, when I look at the average age, and you're an exception, you're a young guy, but. The average age of people who are really interested in the case is high, and we've got to get some new blood in there. We've got to get some people who are resourceful and interested in the case, or, or the the case will die with with these old uh, you know, old fans of, of the case. I'm 70. I hope I have a long lifespan ahead, but it's not as long as yours. And the uh, it's just important to if this case is going to be solved, it's important to keep it in the news, keep it in the limelight keep it in the public eye and uh, that's why I don't begrudge any of these kind of absurd theories and, and very unlikely candidates every one of them helps and um, so keep them coming yeah and they're all good stories too I mean uh, even if it's not true some of the suspects or books I've read like for example Frank Morris that escaped from Alcatraz being yeah. D.B. Cooper I mean it was an interesting story I don't think it's very likely mm -hmm. but and the FBI, just on, on a closing note, um, you know, they, they've done some things that are contradictory, and it, it often is clever rather than incompetent. You know, while they were telling everybody that it was an absolutely certain fatal jump, at the same time, they were telling people that they were looking up skydivers and they were pursuing a case as if Cooper was still alive. They might have been trying to discourage copycats. You know, if you knew you'd die during, during a jump, you wouldn't be a copycat. And with the cigarette butts, I mean, I, I had, during my career as a criminal defense lawyer, I had cases in federal court and state courts. Um, FBI, uh, they're not a bunch of idiots. You know, they're, they're pretty smart people. And one thing they're really, really good at is preservation of evidence and maintaining really good records on chain of custody and proper handling of evidence. Them throwing away the cigarette butts just doesn't make sense to me. 
it's possible that they weren't thrown away, but that they're telling people that they're lost so that people would be much more cavalier about submitting to DNA evidence because they know the, the DNA fragments on the tie are not sufficient to convict. They can only rule someone out. They cannot convict somebody. And it's possible that they actually have much more complete DNA samples, but they don't want the public to know it. So, Well, Bill Rollins showed me that FBI document that says examine the cigarette butts for evidence, and then when you're done, throw them away. Yeah. That just doesn't square with FBI conduct that I know, but I saw that same that same note. Yeah, and it is baffling. I mean, they... they they're usually very, very good, unless, you know, I mean, beyond the statute of limitations, there's no point in saving evidence like that. But in this case, on the last possible day, a, a John Doe indictment was filed, so the case is still alive. The statute is never going to run on it. Um, and it seems to me that that would be foolish to get rid of physical evidence, especially physical evidence that even if they didn't know about DNA, I mean, there's, you know, other things that they could get even you know lip indentations and things like that off uh, you know, skin cells and so forth it's just i mean it's po very possible they threw them away but boy that's not the fbi that i knew when i was defending criminal cases they were very sharp on evidence preservation the the john doe indictment let me ask you about this how how often is that done i've seen it done before but it's not it's not frequent usually case is so stale by that time it's not you know the witnesses are gone and their their memories have faded um you don't see very many of them um on on real high profile cases they do that to sort of avoid a loss of face if a person later is shown to be the person you know the, the perpetrator they look pretty foolish if they let the statute run and were unable to prosecute so it's done as a way to keep keep things open and and save face all right and then let me touch on one more thing. Sure. You were talking about you don't want the case to die and you want interest to remain in it. And this is something I've actually thought a lot about. Like there seems to be this resurgence and huge popularity in true crime right now. And this case, which I think is the most fascinating of all of them, doesn't seem to get a lot of attention. And especially like you said, from the younger crowd. And like the the true crime podcast genre, I mean, is just overwhelmed. But they're not covering this case. It seems to all be, you know, missing persons and um, solved murders. Even well, I think I think murders have a lot more draw than this case. So this case, you know, murders and je jealous love triangles and stuff like that. They just a lot more meat in them. This one. There were no relationships in the case. You know, a brief, you know, time between Tina and and DB Cooper on the airplane before he jumped. But there's, there's no romance. There's no betrayal. There's no murder. There's no injury. It just doesn't have a lot of the meat that these true crime uh, aficionados like. So I think it's, it's almost too clean to interest them. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, no one was physically hurt in this. I mean, right. maybe DB Cooper sustained. Yeah. An injury or something but. and you know the at the time a jet jump sounded fantastic and how could somebody do that and now you know I, i've jumped from a dc-9 jet and hundreds of other skydivers have jumped from 727s and dc-9s it's just not it turned out to be not that big a deal but we thought it was um so 
the the case is in one thing that makes the case so interesting to me is how unsolvable it appears to be. That in itself makes it very interesting. Like, why is it so hard to solve this case? And why are there so many contradictory pieces of evidence, like the money and the flight path just contradict each other, the generally accepted FBI flight path? Um, it's, uh, I don't know, I, I, I love aviation. I mean, when I was a little kid, every time I'd hear a plane, I'd look straight up. No one else was. All the other kids were looking at, you know, the baseball or something else. And so this has a lot of elements that fascinate me. It has parachutes, it has aviation, it has a crime mystery. So my interest hasn't diminished in it at all. And I hope there's other people like me who are younger than, than I am who will share that interest and eventually help bring this case to a conclusion. Yeah, I, I think it's the most fascinating case. And like you said, everything is more mysterious than the next part. And and everything's up for debate, seemingly. You know, well, you can't it, nail down hardly any facts. It's so mysterious that there were people who were, who were, I think, in good faith putting forth a proposition. There was no D.B. Cooper. It was a crew conspiracy to steal the money. I've and heard that. And that would explain everything. <laughs> uh, I think there's a zero chance that that's true. But it, it shows you how... The, the unsolvability of, of the case will lead people to take desperate measures and try to explain explain it. Oh, yeah. I, a theory I did hear recently that I liked for the first time, though, was that a hunter found his dead body in the woods, but, of course, attached to it was $200,000. So then he had no interest in reporting where the body of D.B. Cooper was because he just kept the $200,000. That doesn't explain how that money got on the sandbar. No, it doesn't. Right. Unless, of course, that hunter planted the money there. <laughs> Going down the, the wormhole. <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. That's all there is. All right, Mark. Well, if anyone has a question for you, is there anywhere they could get a hold of you, an email? Or... They could just post it on the D.B. Cooper forum. I'll, re I'll respond to it. All right. And on D.B. Cooper forum, your screen name is? 377. There's no mystery about that. My favorite airplane as a kid was the Boeing 377 Stratocruiser, so... It, it used to be Boeing 377, but it got shortened to 377. All right. Well, thank you for coming on. I really appreciate it. Okay. Thanks, Darren. Patreon subscribers can stay tuned after the show for my thoughts on what Mark had to say. If you have any questions for Mark or thoughts about what he had to say, you can find him on the D.B. Cooper forum, and his screen name there is 377. Is there a suspect we haven't covered yet or someone you think we should have on the show? Let us know. You can find us on Facebook. We are The Cooper Vortex, Instagram at The Cooper Vortex, and on Twitter at DB Cooper Podcast. Or email us dbcooperpodcast at gmail.com. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review. We'd appreciate it. Thank you to Mark Metzler for donating his time to the show. Thank you to Russell Colbert for donating his time to the show, too. I'm Darren Schaefer, and thank you for listening to The Cooper Vortex.